Dave Pryor. Welcome to the Reluctant Agilist last podcast of the year. And Jesse Fuel is here. Jesse, thank you for taking time out of your morning. What's up? <laughs> so this summer at the Agile Conference, Jesse showed up and surprised me with a gift and reminded me that we had both been CSTs for 10 years, which I totally spaced on. Time has gone by very, very fast. So first, Indeed. thank you for the awesome gift, which I will include a picture of in the show notes <laughs> for the podcast. Absolutely, man. It's been, um, it's been a hell of a ride. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is how things have changed and what we're sort of expecting will happen in the future. Um, so I, sort of before we get into all that stuff, for the folks that may not be familiar with you, although that would be difficult, how would you explain who you are and what you do to the all five of my listeners? <laughs> well, I tell, strangers, <laughs> I tell strangers on the airplane that I'm an innovation coach. Okay. And what that means is, uh, I, in, real, in, in real terms, I run a small private practice that offers training and consulting to organizations that are trying to uh, transform from an old way of working to a new way of working, whether it's trying to get more collaboration, more innovation, more agility into their organizations. So okay. that's kind of what I does. And how has that changed from what you would have said 10 years ago? Uh, from what I would have said 10 years ago, I would say, I teach CSM, uh, and everybody would be like, what? Yeah, you know, exactly. certified scrum master, they'd be like, what? And it, Computer come on, stuff. Man, scrum, scrummy scrum. And so I, instead of explaining, it's the whole Simon Sinek start with why, right? Okay. It, speak in language that your audience understands rather than the language that you prefer. Okay. All right. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different ways that we can take this, but I guess the thing that I wanted to start with is... How has your mission changed from when we both started doing this stuff to to now? I mean, you talk about wow. innovation, um, but there's when we when we both started, we were just trying to get people to pay attention to this stuff um, mm -hmm. and get the project management community to not run screaming from it um, <laughs> and get the agile people to stop throwing things at us. Yeah, um, oh. but how how is that? How do, you, how do you see that it evolved or has, how has it evolved? Well, I think it's interesting to start with how the situation, how the landscape looked, what it looked like when we started. When we, you and I, for those who don't know, we were recruited by the Scrum Alliance to spread the message to the project management community. Lies. <laughs> I recruited the Scrum Alliance. I went to the Scrum Alliance first. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You, you recruited them um, into the, uh, the conversation and they realized they had no answer. And then they're like, uh, uh, where's Je Hey, Jesse, you're doing something for us, right? And at the time, I was just trying to organize a community of practitioners uh, in the, the Project Management Institute's community. I was trying to, trying to get a bunch of agile curious people to smoke their first agile joint and and, and, and so uh, we were at the right place. Uh, actually, I don't know. I tell people I was at the right place and the right time. And I got asked to join the trainer core for the Scrum Alliance. And at the time, I was, uh, I was a nobody project manager. I was, I was assigned to the basement of Marriott headquarters, running a small, uh, small project. And immediately I went from practitioner to trainer. I feel like and we should that have was the a theme music from Charlie's Angels playing in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, and so when I jumped into it, I was filled with all this enthusiasm and excitement about like, oh my gosh, I'm, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna be part of helping people see a new way of doing things. And it's to this day, there's still that magic. There's still the the eyes opening, the light bulbs going off when you explain some things or show them the art of the possible. And that hasn't changed. There's still okay. those moments. Uh, do you see it as well? I do, but that was never the thing for me. I've always looked at it like, um, well, first of all, I didn't come into it with the level of enthusiasm that you did. I came into it very reluctantly. <laughs> didn't want anything to do with it. it was a reluctant agilist. Yeah, but but when I got when I got my head around it, it, it became something that I wanted to embrace because I figured there were probably a lot more people like me that were that didn't want any part of it. And, and I consider it my job to try to help those people. Um, but in, in the different ways that I've done that, whether it's teaching or speaking or doing the podcast, I always feel like I'm throwing seeds. And I never know if those seeds mm. are going to like, you know, germinate now or never or in five years. So when people talk about like the moment when they light up, I mean, yeah, that's cool. But um, I, I, hope, I hope that I only, you know, what I see, if I see that in class, I hope that that's like one-tenth of what happens for people. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Pryor, practicing Buddhist, referencing the parable of the store. <laughs> no, but I mean, I, I, there's a lot of stuff that's going to take a while to sink in, you know, and I, and I don't know. Uh, no, it's true. I've, I've, uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about how our respective mindsets have evolved. Um, I've, I've kind of embraced much more of a Taoist philosophy around coaching. Okay. Which is, uh, it happens when it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And and, and we'll get into that. But 10 years ago, in 2009, when we first started doing this, I remember we, we went to Cairo together. And uh, it was also the same year I went to Amsterdam the first time. So it was also the time that I started becoming a global citizen. I started this yeah. conversation of project management, agile project management in particular, was being pulled not just by North Americans, but also by practitioners across the world. That was another fascinating an exciting element around it at the time. And so there was just a lot of, there was a lot of positive energy. And yes, there were the haters. I, I don't know about you, but I, I remember being called the Benedict Arnold of Agile by helping project managers. <laughs> I remember Michelle Goldenberg making me wear a badge that said F and PMP at the retreats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, that was, I also remember when we launched the, agile community of practice within the PMI organization, I had people say, you know, we believe that it's a mistake on behalf of the Project Management Institute to recognize a way of working that involves no planning, no documentation, and no responsibility whatsoever. And, and I was like, oh, okay, so I'm, I'm the enemy of both camps. But, but hold on, I want to jump in on this, because you said something to me about PMI and the Agile Alliance once that has been like, it's, it really struck a chord, and I, and I say this to people all the time and give you credit for it, um, that PMI recognizes practices after they become kind of standard and they're locked in, and the Agile Alliance is the exact opposite end of the envelope. Like they're looking for the new stuff that's starting to grow and change. So for the PMI community to reject Agile back then I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. It wasn't standard yet. Yeah, and it was, it was the board. Uh, there were a few mentors in the community at PMI at the time that articulated that. They also articulated were concerned about giving too much airtime, stage time to Agile because we don't want to be perceived as a one-trick pony kind of organization. 
We want to be able to support projects that are not just R&D and innovation and new product development, but projects that are about sustainment and incremental improvements on the crusty old legacy uh, processes and policies and computer systems that exist in organizations today, for which Agile might be a bit of an overkill. Okay. So, um, so that, that's the landscape at the time. And at the time, as a pro project manager, I was really excited to explore the idea of leadership and management. I was in the middle of my second or third line manager position. And, and then along the way, I discovered coaching and I just agile leadership. And I've, in the last two years, I've gotten really deep into those topics. And I feel like I've rediscovered my first love after a 10 year distraction. So let's come, I want to kind of work our way towards this point where you are right now, because we've talked about this and, and we're getting ready about how we both have gone in slightly different directions and you've moved toward in this direction where I kind of just dug in my heels. Um, so, so what's led to that? Like if initially the mission was teach people what Agile is, I mean, I felt like in the beginning we were just trying to get them to understand the basic premise and the basic rules and it was a little bit more dogmatic because there was so much bad behavior mm. i don't feel that as much anymore i don't have to convince people anymore that's true that's true the people that i see coming into agile workshops and boot camps are very much concerned about losing their competitive edge they're okay. concerned about being relevant as an organization and a lot of the professionals that I run into, they've been stuck in a time warp. They've been stuck in, in legacy organizations that, because of their cash cow, have been shielded from a lot of the disruption that's been happening in the market over the last several decades. But now, finally, it's not so pretty anymore. I'll give you an example. It's uh, in the news that Xerox uh, has been struggling of late. And Z I mean, for goodness sakes, we use Xerox as a verb to describe how we're going to get papers out into in front of our teacher uh, for a class. And, and now they're, they're under uh, a proxy battle to survive. Last year, several layoffs in a row. And I was there for a hot minute trying to use agility as a means to stop the bleeding. Okay. But it was too little too late. And I see now that there are people that, that, that people that were working at Xerox for decades. Yeah. And, and they woke up one morning and realized that their job, their entire company is under assault because people don't use paper as much anymore. And so, so that, and that the profile, of the workers change and we've got four different generations now in the workforce and nobody stays. That's true. I mean that, that four generations or three generations thing used to be a badge of honor. And to me, it's a badge of like, what the hell? Why didn't you leave? That's true. That, that the stigma, or rather the the perception of career loyalty, yeah. has very much changed. And but if you think about it, large companies they tend to have the golden handcuffs. They tend to have really great benefits, and they pay reliably. Yeah. And it's hard to make the case to leave. I was I was working with a bank, a savings and loan, earlier this year where they felt like they were, they were a family and they really enjoyed working together and everyone had their roles, responsibilities. No one had ever talked to someone in another department until, boom, the mandate for the savings and loan changed from the federal government and now they had all this new opportunity they didn't know what to do with and then here comes the toxicity and the dysfunction. Yeah. So 
there's, there's been a lot of change in the industry that many people have been shielded from until it's too late. And that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing, like you said, people that are uh, shock awoke. Okay. <laughs> make any sense, but it's okay. You can be a white guy that says woke. We'll let that go. Uh, okay. All right. He went there. Like, <laughs> I had to, man. You freaking laid it out right in front of me. <laughs> um, Can't pass so, that. Up. I don't know. Do you see that that the the people that you're uh, that you're running into in that are interested in these basic fundamental their first exposure to agile concepts that they're they've got a different vibe and a different motivation. Yeah, I, I do, and I like them a lot better now. I I feel like. <laughs> I, well, let me explain. So now in the beginning, it was people would come in with such extreme misunderstandings and they were so deeply rooted in the, you can't use it for this. You can't use it for that. And I felt like I was fighting with them a lot of the time or trying to convince them. And I didn't want to be in that position because I don't want to convince anybody of anything. If you want to do this stuff, great. If you don't, great. I mean, I'm either way. Um, but now when I get people, in class they've had enough exposure to it so there's less of a battle i'm not even fighting with pmo people anymore i mean they're coming That's in right. because they they're they want to know because they know that to maintain relevance in the job market this is an important thing for them to get their heads around and they seem less committed to turning agile practices into waterfall than they used to so for me, they're a little bit easier to get along with. One of the patterns that I think is to that is the, the fact that the large unicorns, if you look at the three most valuable companies in the world today, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon. Right. And those three have disrupted business as usual, especially Amazon, to where people are having to pay attention uh, to the role that digital technologies play in their organizations, and therefore they have to pay attention to Agile and DevOps and Scrum and Lean Startup and Design Thinking and all of those movements yeah. that I collectively refer to as agility, such that before it was, oh, that's, that's cute. That, that those, you, know, you, you can scrum yourself a website, go, go have at it, adorable. Yeah, a little bit. and now little, you realize, oh, making little that's, prototypes. That stupid little website from the '90s is now a trillion-dollar company. Yeah, and now I think you're hearing the phrase "digital transformation." Yeah, becoming common parlance. And if that's the case, then if you're going to go for trying to explore what that means and how you can take advantage of it and how you can bulletproof yourself against these these small digital disruptors, then you need to start looking at these modern ways of working. So I really like that things like digital transformation and business agility, like there was a period where those, those phrases were like jello stuck to a wall. Like it just, everybody had, it was so vague. I mean, and now it's still vague, but I don't, I don't hear people talk about it and feel like they're talking about something completely foreign. Like even if they're not totally defined yet, they're defined enough that we can have this conversation. So I feel I, the one where I wanted to go with this is, do you, do you feel as though, there's been sort of a maturation of the conversation and the understanding of how these practices are necessary for survival? I absolutely do because the, as I mentioned, the market is becoming increasingly more volatile. It used to be 10 years ago, the arguments we would get would say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense for like fighter jets. 
Yeah. Um, and then and then fast forward 10 years and you're like mm, actually let me tell you about the f-35 yeah exactly and how Every, many millions of lines of code are in it yeah. and how it's an innovation platform and well that doesn't make any sense for cars like you can have cars like drive themselves what kind of stupid nonsense of that 10 years later yeah uh the single i think I, I heard this recently the single most common job title for men in the united states is truck driver really just imagine 10, 15 years from now, when we figure out automated trucking, just how much of a disruptor that's going to be to people who are like, this doesn't make, this is not relevant. Wow. This is just for websites. And you're like, oh yeah, well, we're about to have millions of people that are looking for a different kind of work. Yeah. So it, the, the threat is real. And that's, that's part of the language that I use when I, I speak to the leaders. Cause I'm not getting, I'm not getting a lot of, as, See, here's another change. It used to be 10 years ago, the people that were most interested, most curious were those cutting edge practitioners, the people yeah. that were running projects and they didn't want to get yelled at their boss for being a failure. Now I'm getting more senior leaders yeah. that are interested in jumping on the digital bandwagon or jumping on the digital train and trying to figure out how they can incorporate this. And how do I attract this hot new millennial Gen Z talent yeah, because I'm I'm used to working a certain way, and they're telling me that I'm um okay, boomer. <laughs> if that's what you think a company looks like, okay. Yep, yep. We're having a contest. How many memes can we drop in a podcast? <laughs> Got to figure out a way to get the cat memes in here. Um, <laughs> do you get the sense that the the folks you're talking to, you know, they're more senior? It's not as much resistance. Like you're talking about it as a threat. It used to feel to me like they were pushing back against it. And I think those people went through, we had the initial group of people who showed up at class, like they drank the Kool-Aid and they were full of rays and sunshine and unicorns and wanted all the magical, wondrous, agile things, but nobody will listen to me at work. And now everybody's heard it. So it's not as much of a evangelist thing anymore. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm hearing a lot of, mid-level managers and senior crafts people that are saying, my boss is telling us we have to be agile now. What does it mean? And but that's the same way they used to say, my boss told me we have to use earned value. It's true. It's true. But I'm not an earned value. No, but I mean, they're, they're, they're tools now. They're practices. They're not like this weird cult thing anymore. Uh, they're normalized. Yes. yes. Uh, they're, they're normalized. But what's missing, what's missing from the conversation, so my boss told me I have to use earned value now. Okay, why? So right. uh, he didn't tell me. Well, so maybe you tell me as you're teaching me. No, that's not my job. I don't know why your boss wants you to learn this. All I know is I'm getting paid to teach it to you. Okay. As opposed to today when people are saying, well, I don't know what continuous delivery is. Well, what my boss says I have to learn how to do it. And, and then the question is, well, why? Well, because if we don't, we're going to go out of business. There's a different conversation. Okay, a sense of desperation. There, there is absolutely a sense of desperation, a sense of having to catch up. And there is the reality that for some organizations, let's talk about this with Luke Homan, for some organizations, it's too little, too late, and your organization is going to run the natural evolutionary process of dying. It's some, always great news to hear. <laughs> uh, but uh, from my perspective, and this is me kind of putting my, my, my kind of big picture cosmic hat on, Wait, wait, people? wait, wait. This is you pouring some fuel on the fire. Oh, there you go. That's right, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 
gonna put some, yeah, put it in the bonfire and to all. save that one. Right. That even the people who are going through a transformation that does not successfully save a company benefit from that effort. Yeah. They benefit because as they're leaving with their severance package um, and their layoffs, they now have an industry certification that makes them more viable to re-enter the workforce. They now have an exposure to concepts and ideas that are more relevant in the workforce that they should have been practicing five, 10 years ago, but their leadership wasn't paying attention. Ready. It wasn't ready. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and then some of those bits of the company that are about to get pawned off and sold off and split off might actually turn into thriving offices as spinoffs. The GE Capital is now Synchrony Financial. I've done a little bit of work with them. And out of nowhere, they're like a top five commercial bank in the United States. Wow. And so there's something to be said for, I think, that there's no such thing as a failed agile transformation. Okay. There's simply uh, degrees of disappointment. And All right. Or success. There could be success. Degrees of success. Degrees, different kinds of success, different kinds of- I'm supposed to be the dark one. You're supposed to be the, the happy one. Okay. Let's just get our roles locked in here. All right. <laughs> That's right. I'm <laughs> the reluctant agilist. You're not. Um, well, okay. So how has all this stuff affected? You, you mentioned that you've moved more towards coaching and leadership and stuff. How did all, how has all these changes kind of pushed you in that way? Well, I'll tell you the first inflection point. I was about two years into this training business, about 2010, 2011, and I got fired. Um, so, oh, wait, am I supposed to be the dark one again? I don't know. No, go ahead. You can have <laughs> it. I give up. <laughs> uh, I got asked Boomer. not to come back to a coaching client because I was uh, really bad at helping people implement this. I was really good at explaining it. And I had people going out of my two-day workshops, fist pumping, high-fiving. But when it came to actually helping leaders make some tough choices and adjust the dials a little bit, yeah, uh, no. And I started pursuing coaching then as a skill set to bring to my- well, Hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you think that that is necessarily a bad thing? I mean, I know lots of people that are really good at the explaining part and not so good at the execution. And I know people that are the opposite. And I think that's awesome. That, that's true. I, I responded differently than perhaps you or any of the listeners would feel the need to respond. I, I remember another time, a little bit later, I got fired because I was told, Jesse, you're the feel good guy. And not anymore. You're not. And, and, uh, hey, like Debbie we'll know, Downer. and we'll know, and, and <laughs> some people will know who I'm going to talk about. Jesse, you're the feel good guy. Dennis is the nuts and bolts guy. Oh we God, need I Dennis. hope they don't listen to this. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and we need Dennis. So, um, but you know, you're great. We love you, but we don't need to feel good anymore. We need the nuts and bolts. All right. And, and so for me, I have since come into the place where I'm like, you know what? Damn straight. I'm the feel good guy. I'm going to own that. Yeah. That's right. Uh, but at the same time, I needed to find a way to package, harness, refine, and l deploy that feel-good awesomeness. It's not just in the classroom. Right. Not just on stage at a keynote or at a, at a breakout session, but also in the office. Okay. So that's why I started pursuing coaching was a way for me to have uh, more tools in my toolkit. To your point, if you're great on stage, be great on stage. 
but you wanted something else. You wanted to develop skill in something in another area. Okay. Yeah, I did. Okay. And, and as I started pursuing coaching, that naturally led into understanding senior leaders with a little bit more empathy, a little bit more of a shared experience by starting some of my own ventures. Okay. And now I am focusing uh, almost exclusively to the best that I can on helping senior leaders get this digital transformation thing understood and deployed and happening. And here in 2020, I'm going to be hosting several of these agile leadership workshops to help senior leaders move around. So I've, I've evolved from the down in the weeds on the ground frontline project managers trying to get work done to a variety of different people that I work with based on just kind of where the frustration, the energy in my own personal reward system follows. So let's talk, if you don't mind, I want to talk about this for a second for the folks that are listening that are project managers, that that is their career path. Like that's their chosen gig. They want to do it, which both that's both of us. Um, And we've gone in different, different routes, but how conscious do you think folks that are PMs now, let's say they're like maybe 10 years into their career need to be in terms of their own strengths, weaknesses, like goals, personal brand. I mean, is that, does everybody have to become, but that's the thing. Like does each, if somebody wants to achieve a long, a long career in this field, do they have to be focused on creating their own identity message? Do they have to be able to explain why they're the person to hire instead of somebody else for any gig? Yeah, I, I see two patterns. Okay. And you can, uh, you can jump on this. Pattern number one is being locked into your title. And pattern number two is not evolving or adapting. And there are kind of the two sides of the coin. So, for example, when you talk about personal brand, and ladies and gentlemen, Dave Pryor is the world expert on personal brand for project managers. <laughs> Lord the, lack thereof. <laughs> the I see people on LinkedIn whose whose primary tagline is IT manager seeking new opportunities. And I'm like, Oh God. That no, that yeah. is not that's I not like you. That's sunsets. not the value you bring. Yeah. And uh, and I know a lot of fifty something uh white men who are looking around like, who moved my cheese? And 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 wait, what's going on? And there, I I posted recently in the PM Network magazine, an article, a post about agile ageism. And there's a concern, there's actually a lawsuit that's under place, uh, that's underway right now against IBM about using an agile transformation as an excuse to lay off. Wow, really? Yes. And, and I was talking to Chet about the, Chet Hendrickson about this, who's one of the- Who's old as rocks, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> and he said, well, that problem has been around since for the last hundred years. Yeah. I mean, companies are always looked up to shenanigans trying to find ways. To, so it, there ain't nothing agile about that. Uh, but I do see it as a pattern. I do see that more seasoned professionals, uh, project managers that are in their career are getting blindsided because they were too busy doing a good job. <clears throat> they were too busy getting okay. work done. They were too busy delivering value and then boom. And that goes back to that loyalty thing. But that, that's, that's kind of what leads me to the you are your own corporation idea. Like if you're a project manager, 
I mean, not like at the expense of everyone else, but if you're not upgrading your skill set, if you're not constantly making yourself more valuable, if you can't always tell me why I should hire you instead of somebody else, you probably shouldn't be here. When I looked at the the data in the PM, PM salary survey, something like the average age of a project manager is is in the 50s. And I was talking to Mike Griffiths, who is um, one of the leaders in the PM community and also in the Agile community, like us, strides both sides of the fence. He, uh, he found some similar data out of the UK. And, and so there's this concern that I have that project managers get into a groove for all, and then they get blindsided because they weren't looking to be proactive with how are they going to pivot? How are you going to adapt? How are you going to add more value than your title? And I think that's an important lesson that any professional needs to, especially project managers. Because I know, I, pers- I don't know about you, but I pursued project management as a way to practice management without a promotion. I wanted to have that kind of influence. I wanted to have that kind of impact in, in my projects and in my company. And so huh. I was looking at that in that way. And I find that it can be one of those career paths where, you know, you wake up 10 years later. And yeah, you hit like, a wall. Well, you do. Yeah. I mean, to me, I just geeked out on that stuff. I just liked it. Um, <laughs> I, did, I did. I just liked studying it and practicing it. So what do you think... If somebody is working now as a project manager, maybe they're getting their toes in the pool with Agile. Um, are there certain things they need to study, certifications they need to get? Like, what do they have to do to remain relevant and to not end up like that guy who wakes up 20 years later and goes, what the hell? Well, I think th- I tell this anytime anybody asks me, the key to career success is to get involved in your career outside the office. <laughs> I say this in every class. If you want job security, volunteer. <laughs> Get outside. So that means that means uh, that go to the local meetup. Yeah. It means sign up for a professional association like uh, the Scrum Alliance or the PMI or or some other uh, outfit. It also means that when the boss is start is willing to pay for you to get knowledge, he's willing to pay money to bring outside knowledge of the industry into your office. Stop complaining. Good Lord. That's an asset. Yes. Jump on that. That's free. Yeah. That's a free badge. It's a free, it's a free um, knowledge upgrade. And I know you've got work to do. Everybody's got work to do. My inbox is piling up as I'm having fun here with Dave. So, yeah. but getting involved in your career outside the office is actually a surprising hurdle for people that are wanting to become thought leaders in, in their in their offices in their space. I, I mentor coaches these days, and when I tell them that one of the expectations of a certified coach is that you have a community involvement, they're like, "Oh, oh, yeah, I'm not there yet." And I'm like, "Come on." Well, and I want to I want to climb on that for a second, and not just community involvement as a consumer, community involvement as a creator. As a contributor, a collaborator, yeah. right? Yeah. Now you don't have to host a podcast like Dave, no, or you don't have to speak at meetups like Jesse, but you can get on LinkedIn and rant mm-hmm. and and add to the conversation. You can you can go to the local meetup and raise your hand and say, mm, "I disagree." Um, I'm willing to rant for ten minutes at the next meetup on stage if you have me. Uh, so 
you can get engaged and involved without spending a ton of, that's another thing. You don't have to spend thousands of dollars. Well, it's a, hold on a second, because I want to, you, you're, you got all dark again there for a second. Go to the things and ranting is fine, but what would be even better would be create something new. Advance the conversation, give us new tools, share your ideas, but also put in the time to learn about what's there before you just walk in and be like, I have an idea, you know, learn, learn what's around, study the field. I think that everybody has, everybody has a unique voice. Everybody has something to say. And even if you're amazed and astounded by how cool user stories are, and everybody else has been amazed and astounded for the last 20 years, and you're just now catching on, there's something personal to you about how it's impacted you. And that's worth sharing. Even though everybody knows what user stories are, and you're just coming on board, I think you are going to, you have the opportunity to bring your own lens and your own perspective on it. I'm waiting for you to say, bless your heart. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, okay, so where do you flying to Atlanta too often? Where do you think this is all going to go? Like, what's the next thing? Because I have something that I heard about recently that I want to check in with you on, but I want to know if you've seen or heard of any evolution of the role of the project manager or the scrum master or Mm. anybody on a team. Anything new you think people need? Well, he's he's tipping his hat, ladies and gentlemen. I am serving on the core development team for the Pimbox Seventh Edition. And what is happening in the industry is going to be reflected in the next edition of the Pinbot Guide. And that is two things. Number one, the discussion of project management has expanded. And the practice of project management has expanded beyond any fixed prescriptive set of processes. And is now being described more as a set of management principles. So a management principle, for example, would be focus on value because we can be compliant and we can be delivering artifacts and deliverables and we added no value. So what if we focused instead on a list of 8, 10, 12 core principles that are starting to emerge from a global conversation of project managers? And that is going to be the focus of the seventh edition of the Project Management Body of Knowledge. Wow. And the rest of all of those processes, your inputs, techniques, tools, and outputs, and all that stuff is going to go into an online database, which is a toolkit that you can use. So that is a reflection. The Project Management Institute believes it is its responsibility to reflect the state of practice of the global profession. And the state of practice of the global profession has evolved in the last 10 years to be less about a one-size-fits-all process and okay. more about a set of management principles that guide behavior. That's, that's trend number one. Uh, trend number two is that the practice of project management activities, the performance of those activities, has expanded beyond the purview of a single project manager. Everybody's okay. doing project management stuff. You got the PMO manager. You got the compliance manager. You got the project assistant you got and then there's this clown called a scrum master whatever he does and oh by the way there is somebody with a project manager title running around still working 60 hours a week but it turns out you're not the only one doing project management stuff and so that is uh now being added into the conversation that project management is a collection of things done by a collection of people rather than just one 
center of gravity. Okay. So those are the two trends that are happening now. And in the next year or so, that's going to begin to get formalized and communicated out more aggressively okay. over the next year or two. Cool. That's awesome. I appreciate what about you here? What's your, what's your big insight? So the, the, I talked to a guy recently who um, was heading up transformation at a publishing company. And they did away with the Scrum Master role. And they actually I know who you're talking about. an agile project manager. And they, they basically created this gig that was like Scrum Master with all the pieces that project managers used to have that were missing. So it's not that the Scrum Master role was deficient. It's that in the, the practice, Scrum Masters aren't told you have to go study earn value or not earn value, emotional intelligence and body language and all the other stuff that project managers are taught. Like if you're going to be doing this job, this is the stuff you have to go learn. He wanted the scrum masters to have all that. And, and that would also include some stuff, traditional tools as well, because that's part of working in an organization. Um, I'm really curious to see if there can be an agile project manager role that evolves that makes sense and is more than just HR doesn't understand what the hell they're asking for. Yeah, I, th we, I believe that the scrum master role has an inherent paradox that has been brushed over for the last 20 years. And that is that if you are a scrum master and your job, your landscape is to boost the performance of five to nine people, seven plus or minus two, then in the eyes of every other organization in the world, you are a junior team lead. Wow. As a junior team lead, you have zero impact. And we're asking scrum masters to be change agents and inspirational yeah. coaches. And, and they don't have the agency up. to do that. And it's really hard to do that when you're a junior team lead who may not even have direct report authority that the rest of the organization requires huh. for you to be taken seriously. Wow, I had not thought of it that way. The last before. 20, and this is the same thing with the product owner. Product owner equals five, seven plus or minus two, and it turns into a glorified business analyst. And we all get all upset. That's man. not fair, man. We've neutered the product owner, man. Yeah, because uh, we haven't successfully talked about how to create an, a disruptive dynamic in a larger ecosystem, a larger organizational ecosystem. So I, I'm a big fan of Tobias Meyer the author of The People Scrum. I believe he's one of the most provocative and powerful voices. I follow him all the time. And at the same time, I think he's lost touch with the day-to-day -day struggles that regular titled Scrum Masters and project okay. managers are dealing with because we don't have, even if I had the confidence, I don't have the financial stability to go off and get fired for speaking truth to leadership. Right. I wow. just don't have that financial stability. All right. So I, I, I don't know about you, but I meet a lot of scrum masters when I'm teaching them uh, or project managers and I'm teaching them these things and I'm like, go forward and tell the truth. And they're like, yeah, it's easy for you to say that. Yeah. You have practice finding new clients and new, or, and new work. And I've been here for 10 years and I just don't, I, I remember one mentor of mine said, I hate looking for a new job. I hate it. And he waited until he got laid off. And <laughs> that's a great way to solve the problem. I, yeah. So, wow. I, I, I believe that, yes, there, that all of us, all of us need to keep a very open mind about how the market evolves because the market decides. And right now the market has decided that scrum masters and product owners and large organizations are relegated to junior team leads 
unless we empower them explicitly and we create a different kind of container and we get a lot of, we do a lot of other organizational stuff to create the environment where they can rise up to the textbook definition that we put forward. Wow. So All I don't right. know. I don't know how much that's well, it's like dark and bright at the same time. All right. Listen, you have another call. I have another call. If these people want to learn more, I, first of all, thank you. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Always enjoy. Um, jessefuel.com is where they can go to learn more about you. You've got the, the Cal sessions. Coming Certified up. agile leadership. I'm going on tour in 2020 across the world and looking forward to talking about this with anybody in any kind of leadership role, whether from junior team lead all the way up to senior executive. Okay. And a new book is coming in July, 2020, the launch of untapped agility, which is, uh, <laughs> which is the latest, uh, feature. I can't wait for the audio version after that. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have to find out. Untapped agility by Jesse Fuel. <laughs> It was a dark, stormy night in the <laughs> office. <clears throat> no, but you're still doing lots of classes and workshops and speaking all over the place, and they can go watch your videos and yeah. your other little book and stuff like that. All of that's there on the website. All right. Dude, thank you very much for this. Hopefully, if you're listening, this gave you some ideas for stuff you need to either look forward to or be deathly concerned about as you move forward in your career. <laughs> go forward. Take charge. <laughs> And have a happy new year, everyone. Happy new year, Jesse. All right. Happy new year, everybody. Take it easy. 